Welcome to First Presbyterian Church in North Palm Beach, Florida. We exist to help people pursue and share gospel-driven lives. We hope whether you're investigating faith, a seasoned follower of Jesus, and anywhere in between, this podcast helps you connect with Jesus. Guide us, O God, by your word and your Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Friends, listen now to the book that we love from 1 Thessalonians 5. Now concerning the times and concerning the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and there will be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then, let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up each other, as indeed you are doing. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity on a sweltering July evening to see the rock band U2 play an outdoor concert. They, if you've, if you've ever seen them live, this is the phase in their, their band's live act in which they would set a stage in the center of an audience rather than being up front and then have the crowd gather around all the sides of the circular stage and perform to the crowd in every direction. I'll still remember that night. It was an amazing night of music. But one of the things that, that actually struck me the most happened before they ever played a song. As the band was preparing to take the stage, they cut all the lights and there was a circular screen overhead of the stage that began to flash the question, rotating round and round above the crowd, what time is it in the world? What time is it in the world? And then, being the iconic band leader and front man that he is, Bono, the lead singer of U2, came to the microphone as the lights came up, leaned into the microphone and said, showtime. And then they were off to their first number. I say that to you because I think that that's actually a really important question. What time is it in the world? 
how we think about where the world is going and where our lives are going within it, that shapes how we live our existence. The story of Jesus, the gospel, and its perspective on what time it is in the world. That, as we see in these words, that gives us unique resources to flourish in the way that we practice our relationships. And so, for a few minutes together, I want to invite you to to listen with me, to make your way together with me into this piece of dense ancient instruction, and to listen for what it says about what God will someday do in the world, what time it is in the world, and then how that shapes how we live today. I want to invite you to listen with an ear for, for the someday in these words, and then for how that matters for today. Now, if you have the passage in front of you and you begin to read the first lines, you see Paul, who writes this this book, and who wrote many of the books of the New Testament, talking about the day of the Lord. Now here, he's riffing on imagery that's drawn from a number of the Hebrew prophets, from Isaiah and Ezekiel and the prophet Daniel, that picture the great final act, as it were, in the drama of God's work in the world to rescue it and to make it new. These Hebrew prophets, they, in various ways, talk about a great final day where God will finish what he did ultimately in the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus to heal the world, to judge evil and wrong, and to repair his creation once and for all. And so underneath of the practical instruction that we hear in the final words of the selection of scripture we listen to, there is a subterranean layer with, a, with actually a quite sophisticated view of history, with a particular view of what time it is in the world. The Jewish people, in contrast to their ancient pagan neighbors, were the first people in the world to actually think about history in a linear or a narrative way. To actually think that the world had a, had a beginning, that they were living in the middle of it, and that it was going somewhere. Ancient people groups that were, that were pagan, by contrast, tended to think about, about history, historians tell us, in a circular or wheel-shaped fashion. Life just kept going around and around and around again. And the, the view of, of where the world is going that we find in the, in the scriptures that the ancient Jewish people held... It was in contrast both to that view of the world, which viewed life as essentially circular and not going anywhere, and the modern view of the world, which looks at life as as having no transcendent trajectory at all, just simply being one immense cosmic and meaningless accident. The scriptural story would say that the time that we live in is the time between when God made a good world and when God has promised to finish his work of rescuing it. And so the Hebrew prophets, they pointed towards this moment when God would once and for all put the world right. And the claim of Christianity is that that great bright future 
has burst into our unsuspecting present with the living and dying and rising of Jesus. And so Christians are people who, as it were, live in the overlap between that great future and our messy present. We live our lives here and now in the present in light of that great future that's come to us in Jesus. Now, I know, especially if you're somebody for whom you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus or you've been away from faith and, and church for some amount of times, sometimes for, for, especially, for especially those of you who, for whom that's the case here in the 21st century, you especially get the willies as Christians get to talking about, about the end times, so to speak. And in all fairness, this is something that we, we Christians have done more or less to ourselves. You know, in certain parts of the church in North America over the last half a century or so, there's been quite a cottage industry that's grown up that is obsessed over the scriptural teachings about last things. And so, you know, if you, this might be part of some of your backgrounds. If you've been a part of a church where there's lots of charts about, you know, how many times Jesus is coming and going and lots of predictions about whether this or that political leader is the, is the you know, is the great whore of Babylon or whether the Apache helicopter is the locust from Revelation. You know, this is, you know, this is part of some of your background. There's even, there's even a really poorly written series of, of Christian fiction books called the Left Behind series. It's been grossed over a million dollars. And so, you know, people eat this kind of stuff up. They were, it was made into a really terrible movie featuring the actor Nicolas Cage, because it had to be Nicolas Cage, you know. And so, you know, this is, this is something in fairness that we've done to ourselves. And for many folks who are skeptical of Christian faith, some of this sounds bizarre, and it also, it also can lead to the impression that Christians are so obsessed with with the end of the world that we're actually not much good at, at addressing its ills here and now in the present. Several years ago, I read a, a short piece by the prominent atheist Sam Harris. It was written in The Atlantic. They were doing a special issue that was celebrating that magazine's 150th birthday, and so they commissioned this eclectic set of thinkers and writers to write little 300-word pieces on the future of the American idea. And Sam Harris wrote a piece called God Drunk Society, where he talks about this perception. This is what he says. He says, many Americans apparently believe that Jesus will return someday and orchestrate the end of the world with his magic powers. This hankering for a denominational spiritual oblivion is not a good bet, much less a useful idea. And yet, abject superstition of this kind engorges our nation from sea to shining sea. He goes on to say, it need not be so. We could lead the world in wise environmental policies, scientific education, medical research, aid to developing countries, and every other project relevant to the durable welfare of humanity. I know this is the perception that some folks carry about Christian faith. But here's what I would say. What group of people will actually come to care more about, in his words, the durable welfare of humanity? Whose beliefs will lead them to care most deeply about the needs of this world? Is it people who believe and live inside the story that all human life and this entire universe is a, a giant, meaningless accident? 
or people who believe that you and I are made in the image of a good God. And so every human being then is possessed of immense worth. The people that believe that God made a good world that he loves, that Jesus died for this world, and that God has promised that there's going to be a day where he will one day put this world right. This is what I want you to see. What group of people ought to be more committed to the pains and tears of this world and to the durable welfare of every human being in this world than people that live by that story? Friends, this is the point this passage is making. You and I, if we are followers of Jesus, we're called to live every second of the life that we have here and now in the present in light of that great promised future. We're called to live our todays for as many todays as we have in light of God's great promised tomorrow, which he has assured us of at the empty tomb of his son Jesus. And so, these words tell us, therefore, in light of that tomorrow, here is how you ought to live your today. The Christian hope, it reshapes how we relate to everything and to everyone. Paul piles image upon image upon image in our text for today to make just this point. He talks about that day as a thief in the night, with the point being that you and I ought to live ready to, ready to meet that day, even as it sneaks up on us. We ought to live ready to answer for our lives every single day. He compares that moment to, to the labor pains of a pregnant woman. The point of that image is that you and I, we ought not to be people if we're followers of Jesus that just self-medicate our way through life, that drift aimlessly through an existence that has, that has no point or purpose. He uses the imagery of light and dark here. The point that he's making is that even though things seem dark in the world that we live in, we're called to be people who live the light of Jesus' grace in our dark time. And so he says, keep awake, be sober. The point of these images is that you and I, we're, we're called to live like somebody who has been told that someone's going to come over to our house. Imagine being told that one of the most important people in your life or in the world is going to come over to your house at any moment and they haven't told you when. Well, what do you do? What do you do if that's the predicament you're in? Well, you, you be ready all the time. That's the point of these words. Why not be ready all the time? What if you determined to squeeze every drop of love and compassion and life and goodness that you can out of the time that you have been given, however much time that is, however many todays you have. Why not do something for the durable welfare of the world that God has promised that one day he will rescue once and for all? And so our text says, because of that tomorrow, therefore, encourage and build one another up. I actually love how the old King James Version translates that phrase. It says, encourage one another and upbuild each other. 
point of that command is that for, for Christians, every person that you speak to is someone of infinite worth. Every person in your relational orbit is possessed of immense dignity. God has told you that one day he's going to heal all divisions and overcome all wrongs. And so in a world that is busy and hard at work, tearing itself apart, followers of Jesus ought to be people that build each other up. Now, Christians are people who believe that words are powerful. And more than that, that words are holy. That they are possessed of power and strength that is immense and vast. Think about it. In the very first act of the scriptural story, how does God shape a cosmos filled with beauty and justice and dignity? He speaks it into existence. Words. This creation story is in marked contrast to the other ancient pagan creation stories in which the world emerges out of the violence or the, or the battle between the gods or the carcass of one god who's destroyed another god. In the scriptural story, our world and our lives are the product of God's good words. The Gospel of John introduces us to Jesus as God's word in person. Christians are people who believe that words are holy and powerful. When we use words, we sometimes use them in a godly way, but we are always being God-like when we use words. Because just like God's words, our words can also create or destroy. The words that you use can lift someone up or they can erode who they are or tear them to pieces. You know this in your own in your own story. You experience it in your own life, and, and so do I. On the one hand, we, all of us who have been lucky enough to have been surrounded by, by people who have lifted us up, you know the experience of having a parent or a, or a spouse or a, or a close friend say to you, I, I love you, I'm with you, I believe in you. On the other hand, you experience in your family or among your coworkers, or, or heaven forbid, even in, in the church setting sometimes. Not in our church, but sometimes in other churches, there's that special Christian who has the spiritual gift of criticism, you know? And you know the experience of, of having somebody tell you you're a failure, you're stupid, or that you don't matter. I learned this as a, as a teenager in my own life. Growing up, I was fortunate to have a dad and a mom who, who every day that I can remember would always make it a point to tell my two brothers and I that they, that they loved us. And as I would bounce out of the car to go to elementary school, my dad would always give me a hug, send me out of the car, and then call out the window, son, don't forget, I love you. That was really affirming for me as a child. But when I got to be a middle schooler and a high schooler, somewhat less so. I was a wrestler in school, and I still remember the feeling of, of being at matches and running out to meet my opponent, hearing people cheering in the background, and then hearing my dad's bellowing voice behind all the cheers, son, I love you. I remember, I remember one day when I was a teenager 
saying to my dad, Dad, you don't need to, you don't need to say that like all the time. I believe it. I know you tell me all the time. You don't need to say that like all the, in public places, things like this. I said, why do you do that? And he said to me, you know the first time that I ever heard my dad tell me that he loved me? He said, I was 31 years old. You and I, all of us, we, we know that words have, have vast power. So followers of Jesus are called to be people in a world that is hard at work, tearing itself apart, to be people who build each other up. We live in a cultural moment with ever more efficient ways to tear each other apart. You can ensure that you can rip somebody's life apart with your words, put it on the internet for the world to see forever with just the click of a button. Our our levels of civility and the way that we interact with each other are, in my opinion, deeply eroded. I came, this came home to me as my family came home back to Palm Beach here from our time away this summer. We were out of something, and I, I drove to Costco to pick something up for our family and happened to get there a couple of minutes before it opened for the morning. And there was already a crowd gathered outside of the front doors of Costco. There was this older woman with a walker who was just banging her walker into the closed door of Costco, hoping that it would open. And the poor soul that was assigned to open the doors for the day finally raised the gate, and there was an older gentleman with a, with a cane, and I use that phrase very loosely, who, who was just waving his cane and berating the poor soul that just had to open the door for everyone. Our, our levels of, of civility are deeply eroded. Insult has become par for the course in our, our public political discourse. I think in this kind of time, a community of people that was committed as the rest of the world is hard at work tearing each other apart, that was committed to building other people up, that would be good news. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope as you reflect on these words and take them with you from worship today, that you maybe ask yourself the question, who right now might God be calling me to encourage? Who in my own, in my own orbit? Who on my team at work? Who, who in my neighborhood? Who of the, of the folks that live in my building? Of the people that I'll see over the course of the week? the folks in my family. Who is God calling me to build up who otherwise is being torn down? This can be as simple as a phone call or a note or a letter or time carved out to have a cup of coffee or a glass of wine with someone or the willingness to pay attention to who around you in your, in your office is getting torn apart that you could reserve just a few minutes to help put back together. Friends, you, you may never realize just how powerful, what faith and hope and love God might build in someone's life by your simple willingness to speak some ordinary words to them, to lift them up, put them together instead of tearing them apart.
in my own life. In some ways, the fact that our family is here is a product of, of the way that my wife, Monica, has, has done this in my own life. I, some of you know our family took a sabbatical in the summer of 2019 after a dozen or so years of starting a church from scratch and pastoring it in Philadelphia. And I, I went into that time deeply exhausted and at a real low ebb and, and frankly went into it wondering if I was going to keep doing this stuff for one more, one more day. And I did, near the beginning of our time away, I did a solo retreat for a number of days. And unbeknownst to me, my wife tucked in a set of letters to my travel bag that I, that I stumbled upon once I, once I arrived at the, the retreat that I was doing. And it was, it was those words that God used in my life that, that set a different trajectory in, in, our own, in our own story and ultimately led us here. I tell you that's the C. The ordinary words that you speak to another person to build them up in the name of Jesus. You have no idea how God may use that in the life of another person. So, friends, may you build each other up in the name of Jesus and so live like you know what time it is in the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at FPC. For more info and to connect with us, check out www.firstpresnpb.org.